Hello and welcome to this Herbert Smith Freehills podcast, which is the eighth and penultimate in our series to mark the launch of the second edition of our textbook, Class Actions in England and Wales, which was published last autumn by Sweeten Maxwell. I'm Maura McIntosh and I'm a professional support consultant in the disputes team at Herbert Smith Freehills and one of the general editors of the textbook. And I have with me today Andrew Taggart, who's a partner in our employment disputes team in London, together with Jenny Andrews, enough counsel in the team, and Sean McKinley, a senior associate. And they're all authors of the Class Actions textbook. So, Andrew, I'll start with you. Uh, can you tell us what sorts of dispute are most frequently brought as class actions in the employment space? Thanks, Maura. Yes, the main types of actions include claims relating to collective consultation failure, for example, where there are mass redundancies or transfers of employees on a business sale. Uh, there can be claims to assert employee or worker status, usually to obtain benefits like holiday pay, minimum wage and pension contributions, and also claims for equal pay. Those are probably the main categories of claim, particularly equal pay, which is an area that's received quite a lot of focus recently. Uh, Birmingham City Council, which is the largest local authority in Europe, has recently declared itself effectively bankrupt. And the financial situation has been reported to be linked to an outstanding bill of more than £750 million to settle equal pay claims. One important point to bear in mind about employment actions, which is in contrast to some other areas such as shareholder class actions, where individual claims may be relatively large, is that individual employment claims are typically quite modest in value, but the overall value may be very significant because of the numbers of individuals taking part. And that is particularly so where claims are brought against a very large employer, such as a local authority, which is often the case. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, I want to come back to some of that in more detail. But first, it would be helpful to understand where these claims are brought and, and under what sort of procedure. Jenny, can you talk us through that? Yes, of course. Well, most claims involving statutory employment rights have to be brought in the employment tribunal rather than in the high court. And there are two different procedures for multi-claimant actions in that context. First, there's what are called multiple claims under the Employment Tribunal's rules of procedure. These are claims involving two or more claimants where the claims give rise to common or related issues of fact or law, which is really quite similar to the test for a group litigation order or GLO in the High Court, which I know has been discussed in other episodes of this podcast. There's no closely prescribed procedure for multiple claims, but the rules provide practical ways for these cases to be managed collectively. For example, by allowing multiple claims to be brought on the same claim form, enabling the tribunal to consolidate claims and providing a framework for the parties to select text test cases. One point to remember in the employment context, which is different to most claims under a GLO, is that there are often quite short time limits for bringing employment claims and mandatory requirements relating to early conciliation through ACAS before bringing a claim. So there are additional hoops the claimants will need to jump through. The second procedure for multi-party claims in the employment tribunal is the representative action, which as the name suggests, is where an appropriate representative presents a claim on behalf of affected employees. 
Representative actions are governed by specific legislation and can only be brought where an employer has failed to comply with obligations under particular legislation, either in relation to redundancies under the Trade Union and Labour Relations Consolidation Act 1992, Tool Rooker, or in connection with a relevant transfer under the Transfer of Undertakings Protection of Employment Regulations 2006, known as TUPI. Thank you. Uh, just one other question to set the context before we dive into a bit more detail. Um, Sean, how are these claims typically funded? That's something that's changed quite significantly in the past decade or so. Historically, many large scale employment tribunal claims were brought or supported by trade unions, but more recently that shifted. So these claims tend to be brought by specialist group action claimant firms and then backed by litigation funders. Since, as Andrew said, most employment claims will be individually quite modest in value, the claimant firms and the funders generally rely on being able to sign up large number of employees. So that obviously means targeting companies or other organisations where there are lots of employees available. Um, traditionally, as Andrew mentioned, that meant collective employment claims were brought against local authorities. We've also seen claims against health trusts. More recently, private sector employers with large workforces have become a common target, with claims being advertised on social media to drum up prospective claimants. Thanks for that. Um, Andrew, coming back to you, you, you mentioned equal pay claims earlier, and I've always had the impression that these are uh, particularly prevalent against supermarkets. Is, is that right? And if so, why is that the case? Yes, large scale equal pay claims are prevalent in the retail sector and particularly against supermarkets. As Sean mentioned, historically equal pay claims were brought mainly against health trusts and local authorities because they have larger workforces. But more recently, they've been brought against supermarkets and other large retailers. An equal pay claim is based on the requirement under the Equality Act 2010 that men and women in the same employment must be paid equally for doing equal work unless any difference in pay can be justified on grounds unrelated to sex. Equal work doesn't just mean precisely the same job. It also means work which is of equal value in terms of demands such as effort, skill and decision making or work which has been rated as equivalent under a job evaluation study. Often in an equal pay claim, a principal focus will be on whether two different roles are of equal value, where one is predominantly filled by men and the other by women. In terms of an example, in the public sector, equal value claims have been brought by care assistants who are predominantly women and whose roles have been found to be of equal value to higher paid refuse collectors who are predominantly men. In the retail sector, Equal value claims are being brought by store staff who are predominantly women who allege that their roles are of equal value to higher paid warehouse staff who are predominantly men. A point to be aware of in the context of equal pay claims is that in the UK, companies with 250 or more employees are required to report on their gender pay gap. Although a gender pay gap does not necessarily mean there is sex discrimination, a significant gender pay gap which is not addressed may lead claimant law firms and litigation funders to consider whether there could be sex discrimination and therefore scope for discrimination claims. So in other words, 
these reports may help to fuel claims. It's also worth noting that there are organisations that offer equal pay audits, but where an audit is conducted, employers should be cautious around the potential for creating unhelpful documents and particularly non-privileged documents which may be disclosable in any subsequent litigation. Interesting, thanks. Uh, yeah, I can see that would be a risk. I suppose apart from equal pay claims, the other area that tends to hit the headlines is whether those who work in the gig economy are entitled to holiday pay and, and so forth. Jenny, can you tell us a bit about that area? Yes, these are what we refer to as worker status claims. Worker status itself uh, isn't a cause of action, but the status of a worker brings an entitlement to various benefits, such as holiday pay, as you mentioned, and also things like minimum wage and pension contributions. So the question of worker status is often determined as a preliminary issue. And as you say, particularly with the rise of the gig economy, there has been considerable debate as to whether individuals who work, for example, as couriers or drivers are properly classified as self-employed or whether in reality they should be classified as workers and obtain uh, those commensurate benefits. In 2021, there was a landmark Supreme Court judgment in which two test claimants who were Uber drivers were successful in establishing that they were workers and were therefore entitled to certain minimum employment rights. As we understand it to date, following the Supreme Court ruling, settlements have been agreed with more than 70,000 drivers in respect of holiday pay and unlawful deduction from wages claims. This continues to be a particularly fertile area for employment claims and employment lawyers. There are currently worker claims being brought for delivery drivers and couriers working for Just Eat, Gopher, Addison Lee, Amazon and Bolt, to name but a few. Thanks. Um, Sean, coming back to you, can you tell us, are there particular strategic challenges that arise for those defending multiple claims in the employment tribunal? Yes, there are, there are probably three areas that are particularly important in this context. First, in multiple claims in the employment tribunal, although I'm sure it's not unique in that in the employment tribunal or even in the employment context, most of the focus is likely to be on the defendant's business and consequently most of the evidence, both documentary and factual witness evidence, is likely to be under the control of the defendant employer rather than the claimant employee. So that means the main burdens of disclosure and witness statement exercises along with their very significant costs, are likely to fall on the employer. And it's also worth noting that there are no pre-action disclosure processes in the employment tribunal. So disclosure requests in the context of multiple claims in the employment tribunals can therefore come relatively early in the litigation process and be quite wide ranging in nature as claimant lawyers seek to gather information to assess merits. Second, it's very common for multiple claims to proceed by way of test cases to determine the legal or factual issues. What that means is that there are often issues as to how these test cases should be selected and how many there should be. In some cases, a small number might be sufficient, but in other cases, the litigation may need a larger selection to generate sufficiently broad guidance that can be applied to other claims if, for example, the fact patterns are not homogenous. In these cases where you need a large number of test claimants, there can be disputes about the choice of test cases, as well as questions about whether test cases even bind 
other claims that haven't yet been brought or have been brought but aren't test cases. And litigation over these satellite disputes should obviously be guarded against because it can add significantly to the costs. And third, unlike in other contexts, a settlement of employment tribunal claims will only be legally binding if there is a settlement agreement relating to that specific claim, which is annexed either to a court judgment or reached, um, reached following ACAS conciliation or the agreement satisfies certain statutory conditions. There's no specific mechanism or procedure for settling multiple claims. And so this gives rise to obvious logistical challenges where there are a large number of claimants that need to be bound into the settlement. Thanks for that. Um, so most of our discussion has been around multiple claims where individual claims are aggregated for, for equal pay and, and so forth. But I'm conscious that Jenny mentioned another procedure called a representative action. So I should say that's not to be confused with representative actions under CPR Part 19, which we've discussed various times in these podcasts and which have had quite a high profile um, following the failed attempt to bring such an action in, in Lloyd and Google. That's all very much an area to watch in the class action space more, more generally. But I think representative actions in your context relate to specific statutory claims, if I've understood it correctly. Um, Andrew, do you want to explain briefly how those work? Yes, thanks, Maura. As Jenny mentioned, these claims are brought by appropriate representatives on behalf of employees that have been adversely affected by the actions of the employer. They're different from multiple claims in that they're brought by a third party on a claimant's behalf. So they're an exception to the general rule that employment law claims must be brought by the individual claimants themselves rather than by a representative acting on behalf of the actual or potential class of claimants. There are two situations where representative actions can be brought by in an employment law context, and they both relate to failures by employers to comply with statutory obligations to inform and consult employees or their representatives. The first is in the context of large scale redundancies, in which case the employer may be liable to pay a protective award to employees who are affected by the redundancies. And the second is in the context of a relevant transfer of employees on a business sale under CHUPI, where the employer may be ordered to pay appropriate compensation. The maximum redundancy-related protective award is 90 days pay per affected employee, and the maximum CHUPI-related appropriate compensation is 13 weeks pay per affected employee. So the total liability where there is a large-scale redundancy and a CHUPI transfer could be half a year's pay per employee. Thank you. And finally, then, before we wrap up, any tips on how employers can guard against these sorts of claims, whether multiple claims or representative actions? Well, an obvious point is ensuring that any major decisions relating to employees are taken with the benefit of specialist employment law advice, either from an in-house team or, where appropriate, external advisors. Where issues do arise, it may be possible to preempt escalation through effective communication and consultation via trade unions and other workplace bodies. Though employers should think carefully about document creation as part of any such process and keep in mind issues of privilege and disclosure that might be important 
if a dispute later arises. Thanks very much. Um, so that brings us to the end of our podcast. Uh, so I'll also say thank you to all of our speakers and of course to our listeners. And we will be back fairly shortly with the final episode of this series. Thank you. Everybody.